Our Old Testament story this morning is about the promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants. It's about prayer. It's about family conflict. It's about the grace of God working through flawed human beings. And it's about the consequences of the decisions we make. Now our story begins with Rebecca. And it seemed like now nothing could go wrong because Isaac, the son of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac and Rebecca, they've fallen in love and they've gotten married. But sometimes it's precisely when we assume nothing can go wrong that things, in fact, do go quite wrong. Because like her mother-in-law before her, Rebecca found herself unable to conceive. I mean, for 20 years she had lived with her husband Isaac knowing the promises of his God, of their God that their family would be the roots of a great lineage, and yet she'd never become pregnant. For 20 years, Rebecca was not able to have children. So Isaac and Rebecca, as well as Abraham and his parents and God's promises, they don't have any natural guarantee for the future. They have no way of providing for themselves children or the future that has been promised. So that means that Rebecca and Isaac as well as Abraham's whole family, God's promise, that's only going to survive if God intervenes. I mean, this promise relies entirely on God for its survival. And its reliance it's a reliance like this that few of us, I mean, we don't grasp that very easily because most of us naturally assume that if we just plan things out very carefully and we work really hard, then things are just, they're going to turn out the way we want. We're going to receive a good education. We're going to get married. We're going to have children. We'll retire at about the age 65 because we have carefully planned for it through contributions to pension plans. And yet I think we have to profess along with Isaac and Rebecca that our lives are no less precarious than theirs. That everything we have is a gift of a gracious God. And our text really seems to, to recognize that. Because Isaac appears to realize that if Rebecca and he are going to have the future that is children, it's only going to be through God's yes to his prayers. Isaac prayed for Rebecca. Now, we don't know how long he prayed. He may have prayed every day for 20 years. But we do know that God says yes to his prayers by graciously empowering Rebecca to become pregnant. So now, nothing can go wrong, can it? Rebecca and Isaac, they're going to have the son through whom God can also keep his promise to Abraham. However, 
Rebecca's pregnancy turns out to be, after all, not just a gift. It's also problematic. As is true for many women, pregnancy was not easy for Rebecca. The children struggled together within her. This struggle, this commotion that she felt in her, it was extraordinary. Now, whether she was apprehensive at this point that she was going to die in childbirth, it seems she was ready to wish that either she had not been with child or that she might die immediately. I mean, she didn't have an obstetrician. I mean, there were no diagnostic tools or ultrasounds like they have at birth choice. Rebecca, she was living in a time when there was poor or no premier prenatal care. And life became so difficult that she wondered it might be better if she would die than live with the pain she was going through. So she prayed. Because that's what we do when we're desperate. She prayed. And she asked the Lord, why is this happening to me? Now it's interesting to note that the Lord actually spoke to her. And we don't know if he spoke through a dream or through a vision, but speak he did. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Each child will become a nation. Now, imagine if God said <coughs> that to you about one of your children, let alone two. And two people shall be separated from your body. And one people and the older shall serve the younger. Now, that might have not have been a surprise to Rebecca when she heard this. I mean, siblings, they often fight, and they fight hard. However, the next part of God's revelation would be more unusual. Because in their culture, the eldest son was the most valued. He would become the leader of the family if the father died. In fact, he would inherit twice what the next son would inherit. He would be expected to carry on the family legacy. Being the firstborn is basically... Well, it's the bigger, it's the better slice of the pie. His life is going to be privileged based on the accident of his birth, not on merit as a leader or devotion as a son. Well, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. All his body was like a hairy mantle. And so they named him Esau. A child's name in the Bible often reflects some detail of the circumstances of his birth or includes a statement of hope or vindication. In this case, the unusually hairy appearance of the firstborn son yields the name Esau from the Hebrew word hairy. 
Afterward, his brother comes out, the second of Rebecca's twins, not marked by his appearance, but by a rather curious action for a newborn. He seizes Esau's heel. And from this, he is given the name Jacob, from the Hebrew word for heel. Twins. Each is to become a nation, and yet they're so different. I mean, if you have two or three children, what you really have is two or three different people. One child, you know, will be into athletics, and the other into music. One will be outgoing, the other will be shy. One will be make friends easily, and the other will have difficulty with relationships because every child is unique. And here we have twin boys. They're raised in the exact same environment in that they grow up to be opposites. Our story moves on forward in time. Though you're not given any specific number of years, the text simply says the boys grew up. Of more importance, I think, is how different the boys become, though they're twins. Esau, he becomes an outdoorsman. He's a, he's a skillful, skillful hunter. He's a man of the open country. Jacob, on the other hand, he is a quiet man, staying among the tents. He's more of a homebody. Twins yet very different people. And not only are these boys different, but their differences affect the attitudes of their parents towards them. Isaac, he's drawn toward Esau, while Rebekah, she favors Jacob. With Isaac, we're given a reason for his preference. He likes the kind of food that Esau prepares from what he kills when he hunts. No reason is given why Rebekah becomes especially fond of Jacob, but that's likely because he spent his time among the tents where Rebekah presumably spent most of her time. If there is already any degree of sibling rivalry between the two, the fact that their parents played favorites, that only exacerbated the problem. So when Esau returns from a hunting trip, he's exhausted, he's famished. He desperately needs something to eat and drink. And it just so happens that Jacob's in a place to meet his need. He's cooking some stew. Now in the story, the first time that Esau says anything, he doesn't have any time for niceties. He literally says a crude, let me feed myself with some of that red stuff. And since Esau thinks he's starving to death, Jacob replies to his big brother's crude, give me some of that, with his own brusque, first, sell me your birthright. And when Jacob coldly makes him swear that he'll give him his slice of the pie, he despises his birthright enough that he just immediately surrenders it. As a result... The little brother gives his big brother a bowl of stew in exchange 
for the biggest slice of the family pie. Esau has just impulsively and contemptuously traded something incredibly valuable for something that's going to leave him hungry again in just a few hours. I mean, part of me wonders, Esau really believed that Jacob would hold him to the bargain made over a bowl of soup. I mean, how many of us in this room have not at one time or another said, I'd give my right arm for a good hamburger right now. But we would count on the people who heard us making that statement to understand we're simply exaggerating to make a point. Even though Esau likely, most likely, professed to believe in God, his interest and his actions are linked solely to what satisfies his desires. But I'll tell you, Jacob is a little better. Yes, he's maybe smarter, more perceptive than his big brother, but he proves to be quite willing to use that in order to manipulate and swindle Esau. See, as demonstrated by his actions, Jacob has his own little battle. I mean, he could have simply given Esau what he wanted, a bowl of soup. But Jacob, the schemer, the heel grabber, saw an opportunity to further his own standing, and he took full advantage of it. Just like Esau, he was looking out for number one, himself. And God uses the younger, weaker, less powerful brother for Jacob, for God's own purposes. But it's not that the scheming and vulnerable people like Jacob are necessarily a better people. They're just the people that God chooses to work out his plan and his purpose. Now, what this story should do is to cause us to examine our own value system. What do we consider important? How much faith do we place in the promises of God? Are we truly living in light of eternity with a long-term perspective or are we satisfied to fill the lust of our own desires and seek instant gratification at the expense of spiritual loss? See, the key question for Jacob and Esau and in fact for all of us is what do we choose to do with the blessings that God has given to us. How do we respond to him? Thankful? Obedient? Or do we make life's decisions that suit our own desires without giving any thought to God or his agenda? I mean, it was fine for Jacob to be a, for Esau to be a hunter and Jacob to manage tents at home with the herds. But what happened when Esau was hungry? What decision did he make that actually revealed his heart? All of us have free will. But free will does not mean that we choose everything about our lives. I mean, many significant decisions about our lives were made 
before we even got here. Our family, our home, they're chosen for us. Our existence, it's chosen for us. But it's within this context that we need to see our responsibility for our own decisions. Each of us is placed in a certain context, and that includes our families, our culture, our status, our physical features, our weaknesses, our skill sets, our personalities. Let me ask you, are you content with the way that God made you and placed you in this world? Have you thought about why he made you your unique self? Most important, however, is not what is chosen for us, but what we can choose. What do we do? What do we choose to do with the lives God has given to us? Both Jacob and Esau inherited great spiritual and physical inheritance. When we examine the decisions of Jacob and Esau, what we see is what seemed to be insignificant actually had great impacts on their lives. Just like our decisions, they have tremendous impact on our lives. In fact, the greatest power that we have been given, been placed in our hands, is the power to make the decisions for ourselves. But the problem is we minimize many of our decisions and we're not carefully think about them in light of life's priorities. Decisions to eat healthy food or to go to bed early. Those might seem like trivial decisions, but those are the ways that we live our lives out before God. Once we value all of our decisions, then we can begin to evaluate and prioritize them in light of what God wants us to do. See, when we're trying to capture God's will for our lives, we do that through our decisions. But of course, there are different types of decisions. For example, you got up this morning and decided you were coming to church. Well, the first thing you decided to do was get out of bed, and then you decide what you're gonna wear, you decided what you're going to eat, or if you're going to eat, you decided if you're going to be early, if you're going to be late, you'll be right on time. You decide the route you're going to take to get here. Need I go on? I think you get the picture. Hundreds of little decisions had to be made to do something just as simple as coming to church this morning. And there are bigger decisions. The decisions of who your life partner is going to be decisions about your career, decisions about where you're going to live, decisions that keep coming at you fast and furious. School, I mean, which one? What major? Is it medicine? Do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a surgeon? Do you want to join the army? Job? Marriage? Second job? Family? Children? But one decision that will affect your life more than any other decision is the one you make concerning Jesus Christ. And I find it personally a decision. I had to make that decision 
every day, sometimes several times. See, one of the most amazing aspects of the the way that God deals with us, he gives us the privilege, the responsibility, the obligation, the opportunity, choose our eternal destiny. We decide whether or not we're going to obey God's word. We decide who we're going to worship. You decide if you're going to take your salvation seriously or brush it aside as immaterial to the life you live. From God's perspective, there are only two types of people. Those who make a decision to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, that he rose again, and that his death has made it possible for your sins to be forgiven and to follow him as your Lord. And then there's those who do not. But that decision will determine your place in eternity and it will have a bearing on every other decision you ever make. For a disciple, he's going to be discerned about doing God's will, not doing his own thing, meeting his own needs, or doing what's easiest or most convenient for him. What's the basis of your decision? What others think? What God thinks? In the end, I think what matters isn't that we are flawed human beings, and we are, and we sometimes make bad decisions, and we do. What matters is that we decided to follow Jesus. As it says in the baptismal liturgy, God has bestowed upon us in baptism the forgiveness of sins. He's received us of his own children by adoption. And children don't stop being children because they disobey their parents. Good parents don't love their children any less just because they rebel against them. In fact, if they're teenagers, that's almost a given. No matter how much their children rebel, they continue to love them. And as much as their children may want to escape the influence of their parents, they remain and they will always remain their parents' children. Now, that may or may not be a good thing for human children, but it's certainly a good thing for us who are children of God because it means that we will always be his children, that he will always love us, always provide for us, even if we turn away for a while. For in baptism, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever.